0: Uh, hi, welcome again this morning. Uh, it's my pleasure to bring the Bible reading to you today. Uh, it is only a short one. It's from 1 Timothy, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Um, let's see how we go, if you can find up before I finish it. Good luck. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Saviour, and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy and peace from God the Father, and Christ Jesus our Lord. Here ends the reading. Welcome to our Sunday podcast. My name's John Thorpe. I'm the senior minister here at Shell Harbour City Anglican. and I've been away for the last couple of weeks so it's good to be back but a little bit sad that we're back in this podcast format. I know for some of you you're thinking this isn't really a podcast because it's a video and not an audio but way back last year in our first week of lockdown we did a podcast on the name Just Stuck. But whatever the format uh, it's great to have you with us as we get into our passage for today. So as we do that, let me pray uh, that God might guide our time together. Dear Lord, as we come to your word now, I pray that I might speak to it faithfully, that we might understand you better, love you more and live for you more faithfully. Amen. Today and in the book of 1 Timothy, we're talking about leadership. And so I thought I would begin with a little bit of a game. I'm going to put some uh, pictures on the screen, and you need to guess uh, the name of the leader. So some of these leaders uh, are loved leaders, uh, some were hated, uh, but they were certainly all people of influence. And if you're playing this with uh, other people in your family, then uh, the first person to get the right answer gets the points. Okay, we ready? Here we go. Here's the first one. So that was Donald Trump, uh, the former President of the United States, here's the next one. For the cricket fans, you'll know that that was Tim Payne, and he's the captain of the Australian test side. That's Julius Caesar, Uh, he was the Emperor of Rome in the first century BC. Here's one that's hopefully a lot more familiar. That's Gladys Berejiklian, and she certainly has a role that most of us don't envy right now. There are lots of characters in this one, but I, I chose it in particular for Captain America at the front. But if someone in your family can go through and name all the characters, well, then bonus points for you. I'll let you work out the scoring system in your family. Here's the next one. That was Adolf Hitler. And in his time and in Germany, he was incredibly popular for a period. And, of course, he did uh, incredible evil with that power. And then our last one for today, that's Martin Luther King Jr. And he was a human rights activist in the US in the 60s. Today we're beginning a new series in the book of 1 Timothy, and our title is The Household of God, which comes from 1 Timothy 3.15, where Paul tells us why he is writing this letter. So he says, If I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. So Paul wants to teach and encourage Timothy as a leader, but it's not a private letter. It's a letter to be read to the whole church. So part of Paul's agenda is to endorse Timothy as a leader, but also to endorse what Timothy is teaching. So Paul is saying this is how a leader should lead in God's church. And this is how followers of Christ should live as they submit to their leaders, as they gather together and as they share life together. A you know, household is more than just sitting around the dinner table enjoying a meal, and a church is more than just gathering for an hour on Sunday. It's also about all of those other interactions that we have together through the week as we encourage one another and spur one another on. I have to say that talking about leadership to people who I'm called to lead uh, does feel a little fraught because it potentially sounds self-serving, and let's be honest, Leadership can be self-serving because it taps into our sense of value and identity and significance. And therefore, it has a lot to do potentially with our ego and our ego is so easily corrupted. And so we should constantly question our motivation. And a Christian's leader's motivation should always be about serving Christ. Uh, to build God's people, to point people to Christ and to seek God's glory. I should be an example of how to live. I should be an example of what repentance looks like when I fail. I should desire you to love God infinitely more than I desire for you to like me. Leadership is about our abilities, but more significantly, and we'll see this all the way through the book of 1 Timothy, it's about our character. And ultimately, my leadership isn't about what I think. The only thing that really matters is what does God's word say and then how are we going to respond to that faithfully? So there are lots of challenges for me uh, and for any leader uh, in this book of 1 Timothy, but also lots of challenges for us uh, as we seek to be faithful as the household of God. So let's get into this passage today, uh, which is an almighty Two verses. Uh, But in amongst it, uh, I hope we can also set the book of, or the letter of 1 Timothy, in that bigger context of what's happening in the world around them. Our letter begins with Paul identifying himself as the author. But more significantly, he identifies himself as an apostle. Uh, And that's significant because it's a statement about his authority and the authority of his words. So in Acts 9, we read, This man is my chosen instrument, to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And we see that authority affirmed here. This authority is given by the command of God who saves and Christ Jesus our hope. Notice how our salvation is attributed to God the Father and in this spot, not God the Son. Uh, It's a subtle point, but it's significant. And we've just finished the book of John, and over and over again in the book of John, we see how Jesus serves the Father and does the will of the Father. Uh, So, for example, in John 10, uh, we read these words. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. So the father chooses who will be saved and Jesus is the means by which that salvation is achieved as he dies for us on the cross in our place to pay the price for our sin. And that action secures our salvation and so we put our hope in Christ. Hope isn't a wishful thinking hope like I hope that this lockdown will end soon. It's a certain inevitable future outcome. It's a hope that keeps driving us forward because we're confident of the end result. Uh, Jesus is the one who has secured our life in the present and he's the one who will secure and does secure our eternal life. Hope allows us to endure all sorts of persecution now because we know that we're going to be vindicated in the end. Hope gives us the strength to endure suffering and pain and loss in the present because we know a time will come where there will be no more pain or suffering or loss. And hope inspires us to action and inspires us to go and tell other people about this good news because it's wonderful for the present, but there's also something really significant to look forward to in the future. We want people to have life and we want people to avoid death. So Paul is writing as one authorised by God and as one inspired by God, and he is writing... To Timothy, my true son in the faith. A wonderfully affectionate way to address Timothy. We know from Acts 16 that Paul first met Timothy in a town called Lystra. Uh, We know his mother was Jewish and his father was Greek. We know from Paul's second letter to Timothy that his mother Eunice and his grandmother Lois were both Christians. And so they had a significant influence in his faith now. We know he travelled with Paul for a number of years and he did ministry alongside Paul in a number of places, including spending a really significant amount of time in the city of Corinth. And in fact, it was sent back to Corinth by Paul as Paul's representative later on. And particularly relevant for this letter, we know that Timothy spent time with Paul in Ephesus. And now Timothy is back in Ephesus, under the authority of Paul, tasked with leading the church. So as we read the letter, we see that he's tasked with proclaiming God's word. He's there to set an example to the believers of what it looks like to be a genuine follower of Christ and to help them grow in their love for Christ and to set up structures of leadership and ministry and church life that will serve that community, but also honour God. So for those who love a bit of geography, let me see if I can put all of this together. Uh, Jerusalem is here. Paul met Timothy here. Timothy spent a lot of time here and here. And now Timothy is here. So Paul is writing. uh, He's writing to Timothy. And finally for today, Paul concludes his introduction with these words. Grace, mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. It's easy to read these words as a polite formality at the beginning of the letter. You know, the bit you skip over to get to the really meaty bits. But actually, there's a lot in them for us. Each of these words, grace, mercy and peace, bring something unique. But together they paint a more complete, more beautiful picture of who God is and how he relates to us as his people and how he relates to his household. So let's start with grace. Uh, The band U2 has a song titled Grace that describes grace as a thought that changed the world. And grace speaks to God's favour. It offers reconciliation when we deserve separation and condemnation. By God's grace we are saved and by God's grace he continues to sustain us. And that's both humbling and comforting. It's humbling because it acknowledges that we can't do it on our own. Uh, We can't come before God uh, thinking that we can present ourselves as acceptable simply by our own goodness or wisdom or self-control or self-discipline. And at the same time, it's comforting to know that despite all of our inadequacies, that he still loves us, uh, he still wants to welcome us back. And even when I fail and sin and let God down, grace prevails. Uh, In looking up the words of that U2 song, I found a quote from Bono that I think captures the idea of grace uh, really beautifully. He says, grace defies logic. Love interrupts the consequences of your actions, which in my case is very good news indeed, because I've done a lot of stupid stuff. And grace is the natural outworking of mercy. Our mercy isn't simply God ignoring the bad things we do. He sees how we treat him. He sees how we treat other people. He knows the thoughts of our minds. He knows the attitudes of our hearts. And the fair consequence of our thoughts and attitudes and the way we treat him is condemnation. We deserve God's judgment. He has all the evidence. He sees us inside and out. He knows we deserve condemnation. That's what is just. But instead, he offers mercy. He offers life rather than death. So let me see if I can put God's grace and God's mercy together. Uh, Imagine you get pulled over for speeding. Now, I know that's very hard to imagine and it would never happen to you, but just stay with me for a moment. You get pulled over for speeding. Uh, Clearly, you've done the wrong thing and you deserve to be fined. Uh, Mercy Uh, is if the cop chooses to give you a warning rather than a fine. But grace would be the cop choosing to pay your fine and then washing your car for you. So mercy is withholding the bad we deserve. Grace is about receiving the good that we don't deserve. And out of grace and mercy comes peace. Uh, Peace knowing that through Christ... Our sin no longer has power over us. It doesn't get to define our past or dictate our future. It's peace with God in the sense that our relationship with God is restored and reconciled. And that peace with God overflows into a peace with one another, with our brothers and sisters in Christ. But it's not just Any kind of peace. It's a peace that's defined by our relationship with God and defined by His Word. Sadly, though, even in the church, that commitment to God's Word is being lost. So we have people who are leaders in the church who call themselves Christians but do not believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, Uh, they do not believe in the resurrection. And the Bible is more like a smorgasbord than a road map that leads to life, and so they pick and choose the bits that conveniently affirm their particular world of the view, of view of the world and their values, but leave out the inconvenient bits, those hard bits and usually those bits that sort of grate with the rest of our culture and what they end up with is a God recreated in the image. Of humanity, And so for them, God doesn't condemn sin and offer grace and mercy. In fact, completely the opposite. He validates our sin because God is love and there is nothing more loving or true or noble than validating a person for being who they truly are, for being true to themselves. Uh, this is the type of message that we expect from the world. Uh, but not what you would expect from someone who was leading God's people or someone who professed to be a follower of Christ. Uh, But this isn't unique to our experience. This was also a problem for the early church. So some of the specifics have changed, but the fundamental problem of sin and our desire to define our own reality and to choose our own destiny and our unwillingness to submit to Christ those things never change. We want peace. We are told to seek peace and pursue it. But it must be a God-honouring peace. And that starts with a willingness to submit to God's word. I do love a pithy saying. Uh, one of my personal favourites is never waste a good crisis, which seems particularly apt in our, you know, at the times we're in right now. But one more relevant to 1 Timothy is a fish rots from the head. I had a friend who said it all the time. I'm not sure if it's actually true, uh, but it's certainly true in the context of leadership. Uh, Bad leadership promises peace when there is no peace. Good, godly leadership points people to Christ and to grace and mercy, and it seeks repentance and obedience Uh, first for the leader and then for those who they're leading Uh, because that's where we find true life-changing peace Uh, that's what paul affirms in timothy as his true son in the lord Uh, that's what he wants for the ephesian church and that's what we want for our church Uh, so let me close by praying that we might know that peace and that we might live up to it let me pray Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it contains everything we need for life and salvation. I pray that through it and through your spirit, we might know your grace and mercy and peace, and that we might live them out each day, personally, but also together as your household. Amen.